0: Good evening, everyone. My name is Angharadwyne Jones, and I'm Head of Audience Engagement at State Library Victoria. Welcome to the final policy pitch event of the year, the Prime Minister's Summer Reading List 2021. The policy pitch is a joint initiative of the State Library Victoria and Grattan Institute, which explores public policy for Australia's future. We're grateful for your virtual company tonight, and thank you for joining us from wherever you may be. On behalf of State Library Victoria, I'd like to acknowledge the traditional lands of all the Victorian Aboriginal clans and their cultural practices and knowledge systems. We recognise that the State Collection holds traditional cultural knowledge belonging to Indigenous communities in Victoria and around the country we support communities to protect the integrity of this information gathered from their ancestors in the colonial period. We pay our respects to their elders past and present who have handed down these systems of practice to each new generation for millennia. This time last year, we reflected on the extraordinary year that was, the global pandemic, the megafires of black summer, and fractured international trade relations. 12 months later, and we're still very much living in interesting times. 2021 has been a bumpy ride, but it has also produced some wonderful, intelligent and inspirational writing. Tonight, Grattan Institute CEO, Danielle Wood and renowned writer and broadcaster, Benjamin Law, reveal Grattan's top six thought provoking and relevant books Of 2021, all recommendations for the Prime Minister's summer reading list. These works explore the complexities of land, its management, and the violence entwined in the debate. They examine the meaning of money and the challenge and challenge the government's have a go, get a go mantra. They delve into truth telling, history, sovereignty and the Uluru Statement. They ask how big tech went from optimism about technology's liberating potential to dystopian surveillance capitalism and job-displacing robots. They show us the ups and downs of one year in a high school classroom. And they bring us wonderful short stories from a debut author that examine love and loss and the complex relationships of life. There is so much to learn and enjoy here. It is not just reading for the Prime Minister, but for all of us to be informed, moved and inspired. And incidentally, you'll find all these good works in good bookshops and your library. Before I hand over to Daniel and Benjamin, I want to extend a warm invitation to you all to come and visit the State Library over the summer months. We have a full and exciting program of activities for everyone. And after this long lockdown year, we can't wait to see you again. Now, please welcome Daniel Wood and Benjamin Law as they bring us to the 2021 Prime Minister's Summer Reading List.
1: Fantastic. Well, thank you so much for that um, brilliant introduction, Angharad. I think that was just a lovely summary of the books that we're going to be talking about. Um, But, you know, Grattan really values the ongoing connection that we've built up with the the state library through the policy pitch series. Um, And we are really looking forward to to running in-person events again next year. And I think um, sitting back in those orange lounge chairs again on on the stage at the the theatre there will be a real real highlight for all of us. Um, I'm joining the webinar today from Boomerang Country. And I'd also like to acknowledge the traditional custodians of Country throughout Australia and, and their connections to land, sea and community. Um, So I am delighted to be uh, co-hosting this event with with Ben Law. Uh, He is a man that uh, seems to be everywhere. He always has interesting and intelligent things to say, so I I can't think of a better person to spend the next 90 minutes or so talking books with. Um, So thank you, Ben, for being here. Um, Thank you for taking on the uh, not insignificant task of of reading uh, six books before Christmas. Lovely stack you've got there. Um, I think if there was uh, one silver lining to the uh, long COVID lockdowns in New South Wales and Victoria this year, it was more time for for reading. Um, And Grattan staff have been very busy through the year uh, reading all the interesting books that have been out, uh, Zoom book clubbing uh, to to come up with this list of of six books uh, that we think the Prime Minister should read over summer. Now, I I was saying before we began, um, I'm not sure whether the Prime Minister is a reader. Um, We certainly don't try and preempt the individual tastes of any Prime Minister. I can't even get it right for my own dad, so I wouldn't presume to do that for Scott Morrison. But what we do instead is try and choose six books that we think are really excellent reads that that should appeal to anyone with an interest in Australian policy. Um, So being Grattan and very systematic, um, we like to have criteria that um, help shape our decision-making. Uh, And there's really kind of three things that we look for. Um, So first of all, the books need to be new, um, so released in the last year or so. Um, Second, they need to have something interesting or fresh to say, um, something that makes them relevant to Australian policy or the Australian experience. Uh, And thirdly, and most importantly, they just have to be really cracking good reads. Um, So we will be discussing the the six books that that made the cut under those criteria. Uh, I'm very pleased that we've got four of the authors um, that have have joined us this evening. Um, You can find um, the the full write-up on the Grattan website, which I think we're going to be linking to in the chat. Um, We're also popping up a link to Readings Bookshop. Um, They have a page with books on them where you can go and buy them if there is something that takes your fancy. Um, So we are running a fairly tight ship to to get through all of this in 90 minutes, Um, Ben and I have a mutual passion for, for keeping to time, so we're going to be powering through. Um, unfortunately, that means we don't have time for audience questions, but um, you can go into the Q&A and um, discuss and, and make observations um, as, as we go through.
2: Um, so let's kick off, Ben.
1: Ben. Um, Do you want to get started
2: with the Winter Road? Yeah, absolutely. And just before I do, it's so great to be here joining you, um, Danielle, with everyone uh, on this Zoom webinar. Um, I'm so pleased to be joining you here from Gadigal Land, part of the great Eora Nation, where um, Aboriginal First Nations people have been sharing stories and knowledge for over 60,000 years, the oldest continuing civilizations on the planet. So pleased to be able to continue sharing knowledge and stories here on aboriginal land and i just have to say danielle like one of the thrills of being a part of this chat is like not only being assigned books but you've tapped into this dormant gland that i have which sounds a little bit medical i know but i'm i'm a former bookseller so one of my favorite things to do and one of the favorite things that was part out of my job for over five years, uh, working at Avid Reader Bookstore in Brisbane, if any of you are going up uh, north for the holidays, um, was, of course, to recommend books. So I'm particularly chuffed to be able to do that. And the other thing I used to do, Danielle, was uh, run a book club. So um, the first recommendation that we've got, I think, taps into something that I feel is, is being addressed with all of the books that the Grattan Institute has picked for this kind of summer reading PM list, which is really dismantling, uh, interrogating and sometimes debunking other stories and myths that we tell ourselves, whether it's about education or Indigenous sovereignty, class identity. And I think in the case of this book, the stories and assumptions that we have about ecology and conservation and what we want this future of the country to be. Um, what I find so interesting is the author of the book. So the author of The Winter Road, Kate Holden, is really one of Australia's most um, incredibly versatile writers. Have you, have you read Kate Holden's previous books at all, uh, Danielle? Because they're quite different from this one.
1: They're very, I've, I've read um, In Her Skin, which um, is, I have yeah. to say, a book that has really stayed with me over a number of years. It's an incredibly um, powerful memoir.
2: And I don't think you were alone because that book sold, um, I think, 80,000 copies in 10 years alone. I I don't know what, like I think in the music world, that's definitely um, a platinum record. And she followed it up with um, a sequel, The Romantic as well. Very, very different books. And um, this is also a nonfiction book. But what I'm quite surprised is that this book on surface level, at least, could be construed as more broadly, a true crime book, right? You know, that's that's very popular at the moment, especially within books and podcasts. And when you start getting into it, it is a true crime book. So uh, in 2014, in a narrow lane between Maureen and Croppett Creek, less than an hour from the border between New South Wales and Queensland, a compliance officer from the Office of Environment and Heritage is shot multiple times by an 80-year-old farmer and the officer, Glenn Turner, 51, dies. And two years before the murder at the gates of the property, uh, Turnbull says to Turner, I'm an old man. I don't care. I can do anything that I want. So already it has that very incredibly compelling um, case study to bounce off of. But what I find so interesting about this book, Danielle, is I don't think it's just a book about a crime. Do you think that's fair to say?
1: Yeah, I mean, absolutely. So you're exactly right, sort of uses that that crime and that awful killing to kind of really um, um, pick um, the kind of central question I think is really about um, land. What does ownership of land mean? What does it entitle you to? What are the broader um, social responsibilities you have when when you own land? And um, it, I, I just thought it was brilliant the way she's sort of Um, weaved in those kind of questions of of history and philosophy of land ownership, um, you know, through that central story about the the murder, which was ultimately um, in response to ongoing uh, investigation and issues around illegal land clearing.
2: Mm. I, I think for true crime readers as well, it will be such a fascinating kind of bait and switch for them. Not not in a nefarious way, I don't think, but what starts as a meditation on this incident between these two men has these kind of ripple effects and, as you say, brings up so many questions, right? Like it's questions about illegal land clearing, it's questions about environmental destruction, um, questions about genocide and kind of the the founding stories um, on which we understand what, Australia even is and the heritage of agriculture and this agricultural exercise. And I just thought how fascinating that one incident kind of ricochets and brings up very, very important but difficult questions about the continent's ecology. You know, like people might not expect that, but I think it becomes such an uh, intelligent and all important embracing, exercise, and asking questions that I think need to be asked.
1: Yeah, I think. I mean, I've I've never written a book. I know everyone else on this um, conversation today has, but it really, I thought, my gosh, you know, what a degree of difficulty that one is, and, and I think the way she's pulled it off is absolutely uh, ex- extraordinary, really. And the uh, the other thing that I thought was really notable was um, the the way she captures the humanity of of, of both of the the men at the, at the centre Ooh. of the story. Um, so even though we're doing all those ambitious things and asking all those really challenging questions, um, we we kind of get a real sense of who the men were and, and what was motivating them um, in that really fateful moment. So I think that's, um, you know, that's kind of the art of great storytelling as well.
2: I mean, if you had to kind of, like, pitch this story, pitch this book and pitch those two characters to someone who was about to be immersed in it, what would you say the battles between these two men are? Like, what are the main kind of, like, fault lines between how they understand uh, the land before them?
1: I mean, I think ultimately, Glenn, you know, Glenn Turner is someone that loves the land and loves the environment. And, you know, he's, he's there on his own property, um, you know, restoring the native fauna. Uh, he's a regulator. he works um, in a regulatory agency. I've worked in a regulatory agency myself, right. so i um I understand the mindset of the regulator and that is um the law is there to be followed and you kind of expect people to do the right thing. so he kind of approaches um, you know a breach of the law as an affront and he wants to go out and investigate. um Ian Turnbull, the the farmer um is someone that has believes that he's purchased the land he's he's worried about the um inheritance that he's leaving to his children. Uh, he he believes that it's the right thing to do to work that land and, and to build that uh, wealth and inheritance. So he sees the kind of regulations that are in place as impeding um, his capacity to do that. And he sort of just wants to push through and pretend they're not there. So that that's kind of the, the heart of the tension, I think, between the two of them.
2: Yeah, well, let's bring the author herself into the conversation. Uh, Kate Holden studied classics and literature at the University of Melbourne. has a graduate a diploma in professional writing and editing, and a master's in creative writing from RMIT. We heard about her best-selling memoirs previously, and now we've got the Winter Road here, which has already been shortlisted as a finalist for the Mark and a Vet. Moran Nibb Literary Award for this year and she also has written a popular column for The Age for several years and has widely published essays, short stories and literary criticism but now with this masterful uh, piece of non-fiction. Kate Holden, it's so good to see you.
3: (laughs) Thank you Ben. And thank you, Danielle. And how nice. I don't think I need to say anything. I'm just going to let you do keep talking about my book.
2: Your ears are burning, aren't That's they?
4: Lovely, hey, thank you. Can,
2: I, can I start with a question for you, Kate? I mean, Glenn Turner um, was, was killed in July 2014. And I'm curious by the time you came across this story, when did it first land in your lap and what immediately intrigued you about this case?
3: Yeah, well, um, I should just say, first of all, I'm I'm speaking from Darawal country of the Wadi Wadi people down um, near Bulangong, a beautiful landscape. And yes, as you said, Ben, um, a place where stories have been told. This is not where the story that I'm telling in the Winter Road takes place. That's in Cameroi country up north. But um, look, I was actually in Melbourne when I started writing this book, so quite a long way away. And I, I have to say it was not me that had the idea for the story in a sense. Um, my publisher approached me. I, I also write for the Saturday paper, which is published by Schwartz, Public, Public and Schwartz Media, and um, they they thought that there was a story to be told about this. They just said something like the true crimey thing, maybe something a little bit like Chloe Hooper's Amazing to the Tall Man. Mm. Um, and I had heard of the story of Glenn Turner's murder and, you know, followed it in the news. So this was 2000 and. 18 um and they they just said what would you do with it and i immediately saw that this was a parable um that there were the two characters um glenn turner a kind of a green-minded guy Uh, he wasn't a kind of a a, a raving activist he wasn't an activist in in that sense but a a guy who loved nature and was protected and um charged with protecting it and then the developer the settler kind of guy Ian Turnbull and this this terrible crime I mean it was it was shocking because it was very violent and completely unprecedented in a sense and um it left a very traumatized witness so there was obviously a dramatic true crime story to be Mm -hmm. told as you said Ben but I could also see that it went so much deeper. And I guess in my mind's eye, I saw this kind of Gothic scene of this Twilight road um, in winter, um, the middle of you know not nowhere but a, a you know very unpopulated area, nothing but bush and fields around. A man with a gun pointing it at, at someone else. and I thought that looks like an old picture to me. That looks like a picture that could be from any time in the hundred and you know sixty odd years before that and so that took me back and deep and um, into a deep broad territory a landscape of the past of Australia so from one little incident as you said I ended up walking into this absolutely staggering landscape of the past and what that has brought to us still in the future Mm. and the present Mm. It was a big job (laughs) I don't know what I was thinking I was getting into. (laughs) How long did it take you Kate I was was just it, it just, yeah, I mean, you
1: can tell it. It's just the, the sort of the research complexity was enormous.
3: Yes, I, I got a bit carried away. I think I'm quite a swotty academic type secretly. And and as you said, look, it's completely different to my first two books, which were memoirs. But in this, I just set two and it just blew out instantly. I could see everything was connected. So I, I started researching like a crazy woman. Uh, I did ecological history, environmental history, agricultural history, the history of agricultural, you know, tools and, and technology Um, settler history, colonial frontier violence history specifically, the history of those areas that I was writing about Cropper Creek is a very small hamlet just outside Moree Um, and that whole of the northwest of New South Wales, the the, the very general and the specific histories Um, I read old newspapers and then I also had to research the crime itself and it was long gone by the time I came onto the picture in fact, Mm -hmm. Glenn Turner was obviously deceased but Ian Turnbull had been Um, tried and convicted for murder, served time in jail and died in jail by the time I got to this story. Mm. So um, almost everyone, you know, the protagonists were both deceased. Um, A lot of the people involved in the story didn't want to speak to me. Mm. Uh, They were very, you know, traumatised. So I really had to piece the crime story together bit by bit, literally from little flecks of media reporting and court records and so on. And um, I just have to give a huge shout out to the amazing journalistic work of anyone else who had worked on this case because I just basically pinched all of their good work and and stitched it together in a little jigsaw puzzle. But Mm. it took me four years, four years. Most of it was editing. (laughs) So it was a lot of
2: work. In the four years that it took you to write and edit the book, I mean, as I read it, I get the sense... You know, as a reader, I'm so surprised by all the questions that this case kind of springs forth. And it really comes down to these fundamental questions about the land and conservation, about ecology, about what this nation actually is, you know. And I wonder, in the writing of the book, what kind of surprised you in the process of discovery that you didn't expect when you first embarked on writing the book?
3: Oh, well... This is going to sound like a really kind of um, sucky thing, but to be honest, I thought land clearing was quite a boring topic. And certainly as I was writing this book and people would say, oh, what's it about? Probably expecting some sexy memoir or something. And I'd say it's about land clearing. People would just glaze over. (laughs) <laughs> um, but actually, it turns out to be fascinating. It's fascinating, and it's really exciting, and it's deeply important. So, agriculture—the history of agriculture—turns out to be an epic. Just, it's got highs and lows. It's Shakespearean. It's about ambition, aspiration, failure, despair, um, mythos. You know, the development of this Australian character of the settler. You know, the kind of hard bitten, hard bitten man of the land. Um, around that, there's all the violence. The destruction, the, the the cultivation as well, the you know the nourishing, and as you know, as you kind of suggest, the establishment of the nation of Australia. Um, but it's really out of that agricultural progress um, that we've also sown the seeds of destruction and and our undoing in some ways, um, and that. That landscape out there, which to urban people like me is, you know, picturesque or kind of boring or not really very well known, very little explored. It's not the bush. It's not the glamorous forests and the coast. It's just the agricultural field land. Um, Turns out to be where everything important is happening in a sense because that's that's, um, where a lot of the mythos of our our kind of culture comes from and also literally where a lot of... um, the food that we eat comes from and where the damage done to that land is going to come home to us.
1: Yeah. Mm. You, some, you sort of touched there on the, um, the the settler mindset, Kate, and I thought that was something really fascinating in the book. There was a little observation in there, I, I think it was your book and not the Henry Arnold's book, about um, the, the way the settlers kind of felt almost aggrieved by how... Easy, the indigenous looked life looked the way that they sort of just touched lightly on the land and, and seemed to be able to do that, whereas the settlers were there to kind of tame the land, and that was really that kind of backbreaking, tough work which they then kind of um, you know in their mind was part of the claim to, to ownership. Um, I, was, I was really interesting that question of how you think that settler mindset uh, has then informed the, the kind of the mindset of the intern bulls in the modern day. Uh, Farmers that were really kind of rejecting the the land clearing laws.
3: Yeah, well, I, I hadn't really looked into where this, you know, this kind of attitude of the man on the land, the battler, you know, the kind of guy wiping the sweat from his brow and hewing the trees kind of thing came from. But I realized that it had a philosophical basis and very unlikely it comes from, you know, men in wigs in the 18th century. So John Locke. Tom Paine and Jean-Jacques Rousseau were were three thinkers who I think really formed our idea of how we relate to land in in Western culture. Um, And they all had slightly different takes on this, but they all emphasised this idea that if you do something, you get something. Um, Now, Scott Morrison might resonate with this idea. Um, If you you have a go, you get a go. And so if you act on the land, you get to reap the benefits of that. Um, and it it entails um, God providing the land, God giving you the licence to act upon nature and the landscape that we've been given. given. Um, But it also has this idea of action, manly, masculine, dynamic action. You have to do something. And so I think that enlightenment attitude, when it came to um, the continent that we call Australia, um, when they saw people not hewing and sweating and dragging and slicing and bashing they, it didn't make any sense to them. They just thought these people were wasting their time. Now, it sounds like okay. they really missed an opportunity to live on this land, in a, you know, in a much more peaceful, less stressful and less destructive way. Obviously, um, tragedies unfolded unfolded from that that, that lost opportunity. But, I, yeah, I had to find a way to be sympathetic or, I don't know, not sympathetic, but to get myself towards Ian Turnbull's mentality. And I, when I thought of him, he really was down the hard end of a mentality which has kind of persisted since the 1830s when that land was settled by escaped convicts and you know chances and big landowners um, and they saw that land they they purchased it with guns or you know murder genocide literally on laces um, a lot of it was squatted land so they just took it um, and that idea that they've got it they have to use it and in fact The irony was that until um, only about um, the 1960s, a man like Glenn Turner, a compliance officer, would have been charged with making sure that they killed the native animals, that they put up the fences, that they cut down the trees. That was their job. If you wanted to hold on to your land, you had to do those things. You had to show you were improving it. Um, And the flip to the point where the state encourages development but also has these prohibitions against those previous activities. I think it's just a huge change, probably um, not beyond Ian Turnbull to grasp, but um, I think it's been a, a big shift in our, in our kind of attitude to what we're here for and what we're supposed to do. But it's not resolved. And I think that the tragedy of Ian Turnbull-Venturna is something that takes place in the slippage between those two things. Mm-hmm. They both, I guess, thought they were doing the right thing Mm. According yeah. to their culture and their, you know, the mentality that they have come out of, the, their ecology, if you like. Mm. Yeah, I think that's what really comes out so so powerfully in the
1: in the book. Um, so I think, look, it was a, a four years brilliantly spent. Um, we've uh, all reaped the benefits from it. So thank you, um, Kate, for for telling that tale, and um, thank you for joining us this evening.
3: Well, thank you. It's a
2: great. Thank you, Kate.
3: Thanks, Ben. Thanks, Danielle. Yeah. Thank
1: you. All right, Uh, we are now just going to move on to our next book, which is a fantastic book, The School, The Ups and Downs of One Year in the Classroom um, by Brendan James Murray. Uh, He's a real-life English teacher. It is an autobiographical story um, that kind of weaves in uh, true true stories from students that he has taught over the years. Uh, He anonymizes them. Uh, He's done it with permission. Uh, but it paints a beautiful portrait. Um, It's set in a year uh, in the life of a high school. Uh, I don't know how you felt, Ben, but to me, it just was like a love letter to teaching. Um, It was not sentimental. Um, You know, you do get a sense of the kind of the the really tough challenges that that teachers face in trying to help their students. Um, You know, they are coming to the classroom with a lot of other things going on in their lives. Uh, He's really frank about some of the bureaucratic issues the time constraints the funding constraints um but you know what really shines through and what I found so beautiful about it was just the that sense of the immense of reward that you get from shaping young people's lives um and I think he's the kind of teacher that you know everyone hopes that they'll get at least one of in their their lifetimes I don't know if you had a Brendan Brendan Murray in in your school years Ben but they're um they're very precious.
2: Yeah, absolutely. I think my version of Brennan James Murray was uh, Mr. Weir, who plucked me out of Year Two, and he's just like that little Asian kid in a bunch of in a bunch of white students who really likes to read. Maybe he's a genius. I wasn't a genius. I just really like to read. But fostering that love of stories was so important for me. And I have to say, when you say that, it's. Um, brilliantly kind of unsentimental I absolutely agree with that you know my sister's um, a school teacher in Queensland in the state system and I guess that gives me a very personal insight into what kind of challenges she's facing as a teacher the deeply kind of like logistical and sometimes seemingly at least to me outside of a school system unsolvable problems that teachers have to kind of path Um, find their way through Um, and I think also with the strikes of New South Wales public school teachers earlier this week uh, it feels quite timely but I think it's a very timeless story I'm actually in a TV production office at the moment and as I was reading this I thought it's actually quite episodic it's very more-ish like tv as well i don't know if that's controversial to say in a discussion about books but i'm pro tv and i i consumed this like it was television
1: wow well there you go brenda james murray you might uh, you might yep. make it onto the the big screen or the small screen i should say um <laughs> no i think i i mean i can absolutely see that and it, it really i mean it packs a lot of emotional punch um mm-hmm. you know because the the themes that are are coming in from these students' lives, you know, it's sort of mental health issues. There's some physical health issues which are really heart wrenching, family violence, bullying. Um, you know, there there are these are kind of big, meaty, important themes, and um, you know, they're they're just they're touched on with such sensitivity. Um, but you know, beyond all to me, it's a, just a reminder of the power of education and, and how it makes difference in in children's lives. Mm. Um, So I am delighted that we uh, also have Brendan James Murray here with us this evening. Um, Brendan teaches high school English, as I said, at at the school that he attended himself, uh, which is indeed the school that is featured in the book. Uh, He is the award-winning author of two previous books, um, Venom and The Drowned Man, and he lives in the Mornington Peninsula with his wife, who is also a teacher. Uh, So thank you. It's fantastic to to have you here, Brendan. as Ben just referred to, you know, teachers have had a pretty challenging time over the past couple of years. Um, you know, we we hear a lot about workloads, about complexity of the challenges faced, and I think your book illustrates those beautifully. Um, but you also, as we say, you know, focus on the kind of rewarding and, and fun work that teachers get to do as well. Um, what advice do you have for young people um, who who might or, or might not be considering a career in in teaching?
5: Well, look, firstly, again, thanks for having me. Um, I'm speaking from Bunurong Country. would like to acknowledge that as well. Um, one of the things that I really, really promised myself writing this book was that I wanted to be honest, but the last thing I ever wanted to do would be put anyone, whether they be a young person or, or an older person, off a career in teaching. So if if somebody was considering a career in teaching, a young person, I would tell them absolutely to to embrace it and to and to pursue that because what more of a of a privilege can can you have than to be a, a role model, an important person in in the life of a young person, and even when you may have had a really really tough day, uh, you can go home knowing that you've made a young person feel important or or feel safe or, or feel inspired. So. I think um, it, it is a wonderful profession and, and I, I do, I encourage kids every day, I'll, I'll say to them, oh, you'd make a really good teacher, you know, so I, I try to do that in my own classes.
2: I, I love that mission statement that you're talking about there, Brendan, about people considering a vocation in education. Um, you know, this is what it's like and you hope that it's an encouraging book. I imagine a lot of people will read this book who fall into other camps, for instance, parents, maybe even students themselves currently, or ex-students, which is basically most of us, what do you hope those other readers or what do you hope other readers would get out of it when you started writing this book?
5: I wanted to give people a more well-rounded view of of the the job of a teacher. And I think there's uh, also that agenda of you hear a lot of... Often I tell people I'm a teacher and and they almost... Cringe and say, "Oh, I couldn't imagine ever doing that job." Not criticizing uh, teachers, but suggesting the the immense challenges. They almost react as though you've just told them you're you're a prison guard or something like that. And I also want people to see how wonderful and amazing and and inspiring young people are. I think there's sometimes that very superficial, cliched perspective of the kid with the hoodie. On his mobile phone his or her mobile phone sitting at the bus stop and and all the assumptions that go along with that but if you look beneath the the hoodie metaphorically there's perhaps a young person there who has a great deal of of passion and a great deal of compassion and and there's far more to to young people I think than than sometimes there there appears to be Mm. and also I wanted people to understand I think the the real challenges that that exist in in government education and and be aware of that. I suppose ask that question of are we doing everything we can to offer people, young people, opportunities, for instance, to to break the poverty cycle or or are these just, are we just perpetuating the kind of social status quo through elements of of ATAR and the Year 12 system and and a whole range of other things? So I guess I wanted to expose people to, to those complexities. In a, in a way that was engaging and, and was really about stories.
1: Um, well, um, we do have kind of a policy, probably more policy wonkish audience here tonight, Brendan. Um, so to your to your last point there, you know, what what would be the big things that you could change, you would change if you were a policymaker um, that you think would make the system work better for, for the students?
5: Yeah, and I, I do get asked that question a lot and that there aren't easy answers. I suppose within the school system at the moment, there's an extraordinary focus on, uh, on data and, and in particular quantitative data, I would argue at the, at the cost of qualitative data. I think, I, I think to some degree schools have, have lost a little bit of their, their humanity and I think we need to remember that, that we're one of the caring professions and you see that with with teachers the individual teachers working with kids in their classrooms but i think when we look at those broader systems uh, some of the, the heart has gone out of that in this almost i, I describe it like a kind of pathological fixation on well let, let's generate data and let's talk about data and we all know of course that that a child somebody's child the the most precious thing in their life can't be can't be reduced to to a set of a set of figures so thinking in terms of um of that data obsession I think um it is something that we need to address.
2: Mm. Brendan you talk in a book uh about you know the kind of volume of students that you go through and teachers do have to like go through a surge and waves of, of students when it comes to any given um, year or, or a decade? I mean, how, do you, how did you decide on focusing on the students you did? What were the criteria and what did you want to illuminate through them?
5: Well, I wanted to really focus on the students and I, it's sort of, it sounds like a cliche, but it really is true. The students that I'd, I'd really learned something from and You learn a little something from from every kid, but there are some kids that stand out in in particular ways. So, for instance, a a student I write about named Wambui who grew up in Kenya, um, exposed to extraordinary violence and and one incident where a man was being killed. The village had captured him. He was was a thief. He was caught breaking into someone's home. Mm -hmm. Um, And she was arguing for, for compassion, arguing... Don't hurt this man, he doesn't deserve this. When all the adults were the were the voices of of anger and hostility, and, and here's this one child. And it just made me reflect on on the way that in in all cultures, I think we ignore the voices of children. There's this kind of dismissive adult perspective that, well, that's you know, forget what the kid's saying. You know, the kid, the kid doesn't know what they're talking about, but often kids are coming from this place of compassion and honesty and, and sadly to some degree I think part of the human condition is we kind of grow out of that uh, to a degree and so that was just a huge reminder to me that we need to listen to children and it's not always the adults who are right you know you think of people like Greta Thunberg for example um, so so cases like that where I really thought wow yeah this, this kid has really brought something to my attention that Maybe I was dimly aware of, but until I'd met her, it wasn't brought into that really sharp focus.
1: Yeah, I think I mean that that really did come off the page, and I, I was kind of just constantly blown away by just the um, the, the wisdom and the thoughtfulness of, of the young people that you write about. That was you know really extraordinary. Um, the other thing I thought was really interesting about the book, Brendan, was kind of the the sense of place, and you know, the, to, to me, the kind of community felt really real Um, and you know maybe because we sort of know vaguely the sort of area that you're talking about but um, you know do you think that's kind of pivotal to the story or could this be kind of any school anywhere in Victoria or Australia?
5: It's probably pivotal to to my story. Um, The the events described there are students who fall into those categories in, in all schools but I suppose having grown up on the Mornington Peninsula, it is that interesting place where there is that juxtaposition between the extraordinary beauty of the landscape and the coast and and the beach, um, but also the the great deal of poverty that exists in, in that part of the world. It's it's we have the people who come down in the summer for the holidays and they see the beauty and they enjoy it, but then there's that other side to the Mornington Peninsula as well that um, I think juxtaposition again it always brings things into sharp focus so if you're if you're in an environment that's that's very beautiful and 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 all the rest of it and you're exploring a story or an experience of as you alluded to for, for instance some um, domestic violence it, it's sort of it strikes us as a kind of a kind of paradox and and there's a certain power in that and Having gone to the gone to the school that I now teach at as well, that that strange sense that I often have still uh, of being somewhat in the past. I'll look at a part of the school and and I'll suddenly flash back to to when I was twelve or thirteen and something that happened it happened in that physical place and and I suppose a big part of this too is um, engaging with how I use my own experiences growing up, my own experiences as a child to to inform my teaching and and I suppose be the type of adult that, um, that I wanted to have around um, when, I was, when I was a little kid or that I needed to have around.
2: Mm, that's a beautiful sentiment to leave it on, Brendan. Thank you so much for writing this completely compelling and, of course, educational book, as, as we would expect as well. And the school such a valuable contribution to the conversation and we hope that so many teachers, wannabe teachers, parents, students and, of course, the Prime Minister reads it this summer thank you so much for your time yeah thank you so much i appreciate it thanks brendan danielle um most of the list um of the six books pretty much all of them are works of nonfiction. so i'm really excited about talking about the one work the sole work of fiction that has been picked for this list and i do know that when this book was just about to come out everyone was going, what is this book? Where has it come from? Who is Paige Clark? And I'm pretty sure that was part of the promotional material as well. It was like, who is Paige Clark? Paige Clark is a writer who's written this incredibly original short story um, collection called She is Haunted. I noted that um, the Sydney Morning Herald's critic, Declan Pride declared it um, the strongest fiction debut I have read all year. And I do have to say that, Um, I don't know about anyone else. You said at the start, Danielle, that COVID and lockdown has given plenty of people to have more time to read. I think there are just as many people who thought that lockdowns and COVID would give them time to read, but they actually encountered a reading drought. They turned to things like television or video games. And certainly there was periods in lockdown where I struggled to read. This is one of those drought breakers because, of course, short stories are always a gateway drug to reading more and more, but they're so, um, they're such, I wanted to say delightful, but some of the stories are quite dark as well. So not always delightful, but delightful in the way that it kind of upends your expectations of what fiction can be. I note that the stories begin and end with death. Um, They focus mainly or perhaps exclusively on female protagonists and their relationships with other people, so relationships with partners, um, mothers, um, and and people with whom they have deeply ambivalent relationships to. And then it really traverses the realistic to the downright strange. And when I say strange, I'm just going to give you a bit of a scope in terms of like what, what some of the stories cover. Um, there's a reimagining of um you know what post-life life looks like in which uh elvis is the devil um the neil armstrong uh makes a cameo appearance and uh there are ghosts throughout this so when it, when you when when the title is she is haunted i mean there are ghosts i think both literal and metaphorical haunting this book um how did this land on your lap and what were your expectations and what did you find danielle
1: I'm just smiling because it was making me remember all those fantastic moments. Yes, I know. In the, in the book. Um, I don't. I don't know how I first came across this. It's. Um, it was earlier in the the year, but um, we we always try and put a work of fiction on the list because I think it's uh, you know just good, uh, well rounded reading for for any prime minister to get some fiction in the diet. Um, this is the first time we've had short stories, mm. uh, but I've actually been a kind of longtime fan of the, the short story genre um, for, for the reasons that you mentioned, that you can be just a little bit more um, adventurous um, in the in the kind of themes and, and ideas. And I just think um, Paige Clark has pulled this off so beautifully. Um, and I was exactly the same as you. Like it was a bit of a um, reading drought breaker for me too, uh, because it was such a, you know, it was kind of they're short so in theory you can kind of just stop at one but I couldn't just stop at one because they were so compelling and and fantastic and and quirky um so I just I I really really enjoyed it um and on your point on female protagonists I actually I went back and um checked today so there was one story with a male oh, protagonist yes. out of out of 16 but almost entirely female and um you know we do try and kind of connect them in with uh, the fiction in with the policy themes for the year I mean obviously mm-hmm. one big policy theme for the year was was women and and treatment of women um and you know I think often um we saw on display uh, people struggling to um men struggling to kind of understand the things that women were articulating so I thought um you know fiction is all about empathy and getting in the heads of, of different people um you know what a fantastic way to to get in the heads of you know, 15 or so very complex, um, interesting female characters as to pick up this book. So I think it ties in very nicely with the idea of kind of policy thinking for, for 2021.
2: What a great segue to get into the head of the author herself Um, let's bring her in paige clark is a chinese american australian fiction writer researcher and teacher her fiction has appeared in *Mianjin*, meniscus and new world writing and in 2019 she was runner-up for the peter carey short story award and shortlisted for the david harold tribe fiction award she has a master of creative writing editing and publishing from the university of melbourne where she's currently working on a phd so soon to be dr paige clark um, and her research addresses the relationship between race, craft and the teaching of creative writing. Hey, Paige, thank you so much for joining us.
4: Thank you so much for having
2: me. Hey, I want to start with something that Danielle just picked up on before, which is this year in the real world, IRL, uh, it has been a huge moment of reckoning for women. It has been for a while, I guess, with the continuation of Me Too, but here in Australia, especially um, with um Grace Tame being made Australian of the Year with the allegations of rape that Brittany Higgins has made in Parliament and the work that so many uh, whistleblowers and, and across the nation have made, this seems to be um, a huge moment of conversation and important reckoning that's very well overdue. Do you think your book speaks to or reflects, you know, make it like getting a good scope of... Um, Female perspective that is important for people to read in this moment right now.
4: Uh, I think I kind of go further on that, and I think that the book is a bit more specific, even in that it kind of addresses specifically how East Asian women like myself um, address those challenges specifically. So a lot of this kind of sexual violence that's in the book, um, that's part of this hot topic, um, it's really tailored to this experience of you know, being in an East Asian woman's body. And so I think especially with the COVID-19 pandemic and how that, um, you know, ties into the experience of East Asians in the past two years, um, I think it's that really sort of specific lens of that experience because there's a sort of specific sexualization of East Asian women and fetishization that I think, um, you know, is maybe at the forefront of that content within the book. Mm. Yeah, I
1: think, um one thing I really enjoyed about it Paige was you bring in those kind of bigger issues so you're talking about sort of sexual violence and and racism there there's um, there's a story that um, I think is kind of a dystopian story about climate change the woman that gets the the amygdala removed so she doesn't feel the um, effects of extreme temperature there was the the other one set in the nursing home with the very kind of extreme quarantine measures Um, so you're kind of drawing in these these kind of big themes, um, but you're not sort of, um, you know, hitting people over the the head with it. You're doing it in a kind of a subtle storytelling way. Um, How how do you think about doing that kind of balancing, you know, these extraordinary big topics um, while making it still, you know, these are still story about people at the end of the day?
4: I think that for me, that's really a craft issue. So I'm thinking about this amazing essay um, and it's part of the larger book that was published on Lit Hub. Um, that's called The Racial Imaginary by Claudia Rankine and Beth Lofrida and in that it talks about how you know one of the powers of fiction is that it can you know reflect the world and that it should reflect the world in all of its nuance and so this is you know this ties in the problem of when white writers don't racialize books because the world is inevitably racialized but to me I kind of take that further in terms of in my fiction I have to reflect the world as I see it. And so all of these kind of elements that are at play, so COVID-19, you know, the environmental destruction, uh, all these sort of sexual violence, racism, et cetera, um, these are part of the world that my characters inhabit. And so what are the ways that I can show that through fiction? What are the ways, you know, that I can make my world richer? Um, So in that way, even though some of the stories are really fantastical, Are really surreal, I still feel like I have that obligation um, to pay attention to those really important issues.
2: Mm, I think you raise a great point. Like they are fantastical, often surreal, but they feel anchored in emotional and sometimes even political truths. We're in a country, um, Australia is a country where roughly one in five of us speak languages other than English in a household. Obviously, we're a continent that's home to the oldest languages um, in the planet. And Paige, I remember when you and I were speaking at the Aus Asia Festival in Adelaide, albeit virtually. So this is no secret that I one of the one of my favorite stories um, in your collection is about a ballerina who's trying to learn Cantonese. And I'm a Cantonese almost speaker, like I speak Yamcha Cantonese. So this story has a very wicked punchline as well. But it's also a story about the body. As well, um, and I was so interested in what you wanted to express about the relationship between the body, language, and identity with that particular story.
4: Yeah, I guess for me that oh, so so much of you know my experience with the Cantonese language. I'm not even a Yumcha Cantonese speaker. I'm an <laughs> aspiring Yumcha Cantonese speaker. That's my dream. So I'm working towards that, and maybe one day I'll get there. Um, but I think that you know, there's this idea that runs through the work, and maybe this ties back to these kind of initial policy that you're talking about, but about the body's memory. So mm-hmm. the body's memory of, you know, language, of trauma, of racism. And I think that um, in, in that story, the narrator believes that they have a bodily memory of his Cantonese language, and it accidentally comes out, you know, a, as Spanish, um, because they don't. So this idea of you know what the body remembers, what the body thinks it remembers, um, and how we hold on to these experiences um, of trauma in our in our lives.
2: Yeah.
1: Was um, I mean, there's obviously so many different books and in, in um, so many different stories in the collections. Every page. Um, were there any that were sort of particularly fun for you to write? Um, one that I I wondered if you had fun with because I certainly had fun reading it was the Gwendolyn Wake's story about the uh, the call centre operator in Department of Recovery, which is sort of a, a government-funded um, service giving relationship advice to people that want to get back together with their ex, which I thought was just such a like crazy but fantastical premise. Um, was was that
4: one that you particularly enjoyed or were there others that just sort of flew off the pen? Well, Danielle, I can't say that I ever enjoy writing and I don't know if other, other other writers on the panel can speak to this. But I find yep. writing to be, you know, incredibly painful. And I mean, you probably I, I'm not sure you feel different you both feel differently, but you know, it's a very hard process. But I could see the humor in that story. And I think that part of it is that, you know, that's one of only two uh, three narrators, you know, that are white narrators. And then that um, that particular character of Gwendolyn She had a really, um, I guess, a very sort of strong idea of her own whiteness. So I found that really fun to play into, to kind of hype up, you know, what would it be like if you were this sort of really hyper aware white person um, operating in the world? And then also, you know, the love interest in that is um, an East Asian man. And there's a lot of, I guess, the opposite of the sort of stereotypes of East Asian women there's a lot of stereotypes of East Asian men as well so to make him this really sort of sexualized hot guy I just had so much fun with that because I just played into all the crushes I'd had on you know hot Chinese guys all through my teenage years and I really you know got into it so that was a great way of turning these sort of ideas on their head. Mm-hmm. I, I really uh, enjoyed that they both had a passion for spreadsheets as well. That was most excellent.
2: <laughs> uh, Paige, you and I are probably going to need a breakout Zoom to discuss our ambivalent relationship to, to writing, but that's for another time. Hey, I'm curious if you wanted uh, politicians and perhaps more specifically the Prime Minister to read even just one of the stories in uh, in the book over the break, because surely that isn't a hard task. I'm sure they have to read a- a lot of policy documents, but if they can read some fiction, they've got a lot of self-contained options uh, in your book that can be knocked over quite quickly. What would you want Australian politicians and the PM to read and why?
4: It's so funny that you asked me this question, because before when people were, the other um, authors were saying, oh, you know, people ask them, is the prime minister going to read the book? Everyone that's come to me has said, imagine if he read it, because I think they thought there's no way Scott Morrison is going to read this book. Even if it's been put across his desk, it's just not gonna happen. But I think that the story that is most uh, sort of applicable is The Cranes. Uh, that's actually told, you know, it's very much about Australian suburbia. Um, it, and that story I wrote in a class that was on Riding Australia. And the whole sort of theory behind it was, how can I write Australia when I am so outside of this idea of what it means to be Australian to politicians um, because I'm not, you know, a white Anglo male? Um, and so that story really addresses that. And I think in that way, it would speak to a lot of things that Scott Morrison would understand. But it also raises a lot of issues with this sort of toxic masculine culture. Fantastic. Well,
1: um, congratulations, Paige. What a um, cracking first book. <laughs> Brilliant. Um, and thank you so much for, for, for joining us this evening. Thank you both so
4: much for having me. Thank you.
1: Um, we are now, we are setting a, a fast pace. Ben, um, We're now going to move to the, the shortest book of this evening. Um, Oh good, you've got I don't have a, I only had an e-copy, so everyone can see it. Oh there. mine
2: signed. I don't want to, you know, be oh. slug about it. I have oh. a print signed copy, oh, It's here. My
1: signed copy, <laughs> 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 But it is On Money by Rick Morton. Um it's 40 so 40 or so pages, I think. Um, but you know, it packs a, a lot of punch and it's it's small size. Um, you know, Rick is a journalist. He has written before about his life growing up as the child of a single mother in poverty. And um I don't know if you've read 100 Years of Dirt, Ben, but um, yeah, it's a fantastic book. Uh, and I really sort of think of this actually as kind of a companion piece to, to that book. This is more, a bit more conceptual. Um, you know, it sort of reflects on the idea of, of, of money, having money, how it changes people's lives, the impact of not having it, um, and, and some of those broader structural forces that are play, at play in economic disadvantage. Um, it is just, it's filled with so many, um, you know, beautiful insights. Um, I I just brought I um, pulled one out that that really struck me Um, like gravity we must think of money as a force that acts on us, it can and does distort time and space, in the most crucial of ways we can slow the passage of time with money, we can allow ourselves a breather, it is a lubricant reducing the friction of existence. That really struck home to me. I am someone that makes jokes all the time about throwing money at problems and, you know, it really, I was like, yes, that is absolutely a luxury to to be able to do that. And I think, um, you know, Rick uses his mother as really the human face of of this book, um, of of what happens when you don't have that luxury, when you have to live with that friction, Um, the mental load that that brings, um, the constant struggle to make ends meet. Um, there's even kind of the physical cost of that. And then what I thought was really interesting is the way that he then um, reflects on how that's shaped his own attitude to, to money, even as he's sort of become a journalist and very much middle class, um, how he's carried that, that with him. And I might ask him a question about that in, in the moment. Um, but, you know, it doesn't just look at the micro. It also looks at these kind of broader structural and, and systematic um. Issues that are that are fed into entrenched poverty. So it does a lot in, in 40 pages. Um yeah.
2: what what were your thoughts on it, Ben? Oh uh, look, even as you were reading out that incredible quote, Danielle, I, I I'm I'm a vandal. I like I actually don't mind dog earing books at the bottom when I see a good quote. And my my copy just is a little bit vandalized, actually, because there were some parts of the book that I just thought were just so precise, I think is the word, when it came to describing. Um, the currency of money and its relationship or its perceived relationship to morality or status or standing. And when I said right up at the top of this conversation that one of the things I think so many of the books have in common is that they're kind of puncturing myths. I think this is a prime example of that because one of the myths I think Australia really prides itself on is its egalitarianism. And I think by extension of that, it's a lack of class. Us. That is absolute phooey. I was about to say another word. Let's just go with that one. But it's, it's such a dangerous lie, because if that lie keeps extending, it has influence on policy, often driven by people who don't have a lived experience of the situations that Rick talks about. And I don't think the stakes could be higher than when having a discussion about money or lack thereof
1: indeed well that seems like a very good time to to bring in rick he is a fantastic journalist um, I, I first sort of came across his work when he was um, doing reporting on the national disability insurance scheme when he was the social affairs writer at the australian mm. uh, he is now a senior reporter at the saturday paper um, as i mentioned his first book was a memoir 100 years of dirt uh, which i think has been listed for basically every award under the sun in, in australia um, In addition to that, he also has a new release uh, book on top of On Money, um, which is My Year of Living Vulnerably, which is also generating a lot of of excitement. Um, So welcome, Rick. You've you've clearly had a busy couple of years.
5: Yeah, I'm tired.
2: (laughs) (laughs) You're allowed to be. Yeah, I think that's just you. the
1: kind of uh, universal response to the last eighteen <laughs> yes. months. But if you've done a lot in that time as well, I can only imagine
5: you're extra tired. <laughs> I've ne- I've never been more productive, but I don't know exactly what that's led to. So here we are.
2: <laughs> <laughs> hey, I wonder. May I do something that I might like, that can you know really make authors feel like they're in pain? But I want to read. something to you because as danielle did before like i do think that there are just perfect gems that you've expressed Um, and uh, in page 44 of this slim book you write when you're at or near the bottom the race to survive is brutal in this state prioritizing short-term distractions over long-term solvency isn't madness it makes perfect sense you've lived the long term already and it rarely works out in your favor what use is a rainy day fund when it is torrential every day. So when I hear commentators bemoaning the fact that poor people seem to have new televisions or phones, there is only one thought that springs to mind. Why won't you shut that up? And (laughs) you know, like one, that was one of the quotes that I read out to my partner out loud because I'm like, oh my gosh, Rick has just nailed it in like two paragraphs. But I also get the sense that a current through this book is anger. And yeah. I wonder if that's a fair call, and if so, where does that anger come from? What are you angry about?
5: Yeah, I allowed myself to be angry in this, and I, I usually don't think it's a useful emotion. But I'm, I'm angry on behalf of my mum uh, more than anything else. And I'm angry also in a, in a slightly self-serving passion in the sense that I feel like even with all of the success I've had so far in life, and particularly most recently, and where I've become financially secure, I'm not secure in the same way. Uh, that other people are or can be, and i 'm so much luckier, and so i 'm angry at myself for even feeling that sense of kind of envy, I guess um, that i 've been put in this position. I mean essentially i 'm angry at you know the the worst excesses of capitalism that have not rewarded my mum 's extreme hard work, um, that for some reason have rewarded mine um, despite all of my failings and shortcomings, some of which are biological as a result of growing up without money and some of which are just purely my own. Um, and I hate that system. I hate it.
1: Rick, I want to come back to this, the system points in a sec, but, you know, I just, as I said, I think one of the fascinating points of the book is what you just touched on, how that has impacted your relationship with, with money, even as you've become more financially comfortable. Can you um, just, just share with people um, what, what you say is the kind of difference in your mindset versus someone who, who's grown up in more comfortable circumstances?
5: Do you know, I was worried about this when I wrote this book because I thought maybe I'm just justifying my own bad habits with cash. Uh, Because I do have a really solid reputation in my friendship group of just being the worst. Like it's it's almost um, ridiculous how bad I am with money. Up until even just a couple of years ago, I was in, my friend got married in New Zealand and I had to go to this wedding and I was earning, you know, a really good salary. Um, And I booked the flights well in advance. They weren't that expensive. But by the time I got there, I had no cash. And so I went the entire five, six days with nothing except uh, the $100 I had and was trying to keep it from my friends until the very last day when I literally couldn't get a hold of my best friend who was already at the airport. I didn't have enough money to get to the airport um, to go home. I'm 31 at this point. Um, And eventually I got a hold of her um, and she had to come out of the airport and pay for my cab and also buy me a packet of cigarettes because that's what I was most stressed about. Um, because I couldn't afford that. And part of the reason I wanted to write this book was to talk about the science behind the psychology of money because it's not just a made-up theory. And, in fact, on publication, so many, the, the best thing that's ever happened to me in my life is the people who have written to me about this book and said, you have put into words something that I have felt but didn't know how to articulate. And, you know, I'm reading Robert Sapolsky. He's like the world new leading neurobiologist and primate researcher at the moment. And the studies are overwhelming about what poverty does to the brain growing up. It makes the amygdala bigger. It atrophies the hippocampus. Um, The frontal cortex, which is the most recently evolved part of the brain, is also the last one to mature, which means it's the most decoupled thing in the human body from genetics. So Mm -hmm. it takes environmental cues. And so there's this research that shows that kids from low SES backgrounds have to use more of their prefrontal uh, their frontal cortex than high SES kids to do the same tasks um, which is literally a cognitive tax it is literally and this is uh, and plus there's higher um what they call glucocorticoid um hormone levels i think which is the stress response and that stuff atrophies the part of the brain which is responsible for impulse control um, executive function um, higher order thinking all of that kind of stuff so You know, part of the reason I think I've made terrible decisions is even though I know logically after the fact that they were terrible, they felt incredibly um, normal and even good at the time.
2: Mm. You know, on money covers the personal effects that a lack of money can have on an individual, on a family, but you also talk about the culture as well when you write that our belief is that the intrinsic worth, that our intrinsic worth is predicated on having money, and you wanted to, I get the sense, puncture that belief. Uh, why? Yeah, I mean, basically because it's not true, and I feel like there are
5: a lot of things we do, myself included, in the pursuit of money that are, that are not done because money facilitates anything but because money confers status mm. um, or even value. So, you know, having money doesn't mean you're a good person. You could be, and you might do good things with it, But it doesn't, that that in and of itself is not the marker of whether you are good. Equally, you know, you're not good just because you're a noble poor person. Um, But in my experience, and I think I quote the Grapes of Wrath in here from Steinbeck, which is one of the most piercing summaries of what it's like to live in destitution, where, you know, Ma says to the storekeeper when he gives her a loan of 10 cents, you know, if ever you're in help, look for the person who has nothing because they are the ones that will give it. And that has always been my experience growing up. Um, to the point, you know, with my friends from pretty working class backgrounds growing up, we didn't blink an eye between us if we needed to lend money to one another. But I remember having to borrow money from some friends who grew up quite wealthy. And in one case, they made me sign a contract, <laughs> which was just really kind of odd. But it, it, it and I'm not having a crack at them because in their sense, that's just good financial management. Whereas I'm like, who cares? It's just money. Uh, it doesn't mean anything in terms of the value. Um, but what it does do is help me get through life with time-saving things, um, and to defeat the stress response that is uh, very much built into my body at this point. I think.
1: Mm. Um, so, Rick, this is a, a list um, intended for the the prime minister and and policymakers. Um, what would be the one or two things that that you would hope um, they would take away from your book?
5: Yeah, and I I regret being a little bit too angry on this front because even though I I am angry about it, I do want them to really understand this and. The systems we have in place particularly with uh the welfare system and the compliance regime that is around employment services they call it employment services but they essentially um you know outsource providers that force unemployed people who are getting welfare benefits and they are welfare is a good thing Uh, they force them through these hoops you know you've got to look for 20 jobs a month you've got to do xyz if you don't we'll just turn off the tap um we'll turn off the tap even if uh, we don't aren't completely sure that you haven't done the thing you're meant to do, and then if if we made a mistake, okay, we'll turn it back on, but it's three or four days later. Um, this whole system is set up because people who have come from money—not everyone, but particularly this government—but um, also in the neoliberal sense, they believe that it kind of makes you lazy, or uh, you know, they think there has to be a mutual obligation. But what it does, and I I truly mean this, and I hope some of what I said before about the way the brain and the stress response develops, what these systems are doing is making an already bad situation a lot, lot worse. Um, This is why when RoboDebt happened, people killed themselves. Mm. Um, We know of at least one or two cases where that happened. There may be more, but in other senses, people suffered psychologically at great, great levels not because they didn't know necessarily that they didn't have a debt, but because they knew that they couldn't win in this system. And even if you don't have a heart, from a purely economic management sense, you are making the problem worse. Mm -hmm. Now, what causes stress? Poverty, Um, not just, uh, and what causes bad outcomes? Poverty, not just because you don't have access to the good schools, that's a separate issue, Um, not just because you might be eating a bad diet. Nutrition is a separate issue that also has a multiplier effect, but poverty itself is the problem, and what fixes poverty is money, Uh, and money without uh, the obligation, quote, unquote, to do what the government tells you to do, which just makes a bad situation worse.
2: Mm. Thank you so much for your time, Rick. And thank you for writing this book as well. I think anyone out there whose back got stiff and their muscles got tense whenever Scott Morrison, who's actually one of the, um, this is the book, the book of the six books chosen that he's actually quoted in himself, um, where he says, if you have a go, you get a go. Uh, this feels like a perfect kind of reply to, to that. So thank you so much for your time and for writing this. Thank you, Ben and Danielle, you lovely people. (laughs) Thanks, Rick. Cheers, guys. Well, Danielle, it's just us now because um, those are all the authors that we're showcasing, but we've still got a couple more books to go. And I thought this would be a good opportunity just to have a sneaky little chat with you about why we chose them and what we got out of each of these books. So it's going to be a free-ranging conversation, but I'll introduce the books one by one. One is... Truth Telling, History, Sovereignty, and the Uluru Statement by Henry Reynolds. And the other one is this one uh, System Error, Where Big Tech Went Wrong, and How We Can Reboot. reboot. Um, You know, just the small topics there, Danielle. Yeah, I know, just a couple of small
1: ones to finish with. (laughs) Yeah, the,
2: the fate of the nation, history itself, and what the future of big tech and the effects that it has on our lives. I mean, I say that facetiously, but these two books seem like a very good place to start um, understanding more deeply two conversations that are each in their own way inescapable, wouldn't you say?
1: Yeah. Well, I mean, there's certainly both conversations that are very much on the the, the policymaker's agenda right now. So, I mean, the, the Henry um, Reynolds book, Truth Telling, and I think Henry is actually in the audience. So, hello, Henry. We didn't get organised in time to have him um, come and talk, unfortunately. But um, you know, it, it opens with the Uluru statement from the heart, and it um, it very kind of forensically takes apart the question of of sovereignty and some of the words in that statement around sovereignty, um, you know, never being seated and and sitting alongside the the sovereignty that exists um, from the perspective of the kind of international law and thinking and precedent that existed at the time. So, I mean, I, I loved the kind of forensic way he, he kind of pulls mm-hmm. apart that question of sovereignty. But, I mean, these are issues that are, are very live and, and, you know, we're, we're talking about um, Indigenous constitutional recognition in, in coming years. Um, the, the Statement from the Heart isn't going away and that's, um, you know, around the kind of Indigenous voice to Parliament, um, so, the, the, you know, the, these are live issues, as you say. Um, ditto with the, the tech book. Um, you know, very clearly um, our Prime Minister has put that on the agenda, the question of um, how we kind of rein in some of the negative side effects that, that big tech companies are having in our lives. Um, we've actually been um, pretty world-leading in some of this stuff yeah. um, in the country. So we had the Media Bargaining Code, which I think was the first country in the world to do something like that. Uh, We had um, one of the first um, competition body inquiries in the ACCC Digital Platforms Inquiry to look at some of the questions around market power and dominance of what what can be done. Um, So, as you say, both kind of really live issues that are are running right now and I think will um, be significant issues for the um, next federal government, whether it's Labor or Coalition, they'll be be very much thinking about these, these two sets of issues.
2: Mm. I mean, what a valuable contribution, especially for um, non-Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander readers who might have uh, heard of the Uluru Statement from the Heart, might have actually also read it as well. But I think for me, and I am familiar with the Uluru Statement from the Heart, I've been part of campaigns about um, trying to promote it and uh, be taken seriously um, with recognition within the Constitution. But I think this book, especially, Danielle, kind of was a paradigm shifter for me, because the way in which um, the idea of sovereignty is really uh, rooted in, well, first of all, history, but the conventions of international law. I mean, I felt so ignorant when we talk about um, Aboriginal sovereignty. I think maybe a lot of non-Indigenous people, including myself, um, don't know the extent to which that is such a firm, solid and documented Idea, and that there are all these other precedents in history uh, with the the conventions of international law, where Australia becomes a complete outlier, like in terms of our understanding and how we've enshrined and recognised any idea of Indigenous sovereignty, were actually very strange within the world. And even at the time in which Australia was colonised slash invaded, um, the procedures... The understandings are kind of very counter to, I think, a lot of non-indigenous non-indigenous Australians' understanding of one history and what Aboriginal sovereignty even means. Did it did it have the same effect for you? Did it, I don't know, pivot your understanding in terms of what the Uluru Statement of the Heart is actually referring to?
1: Yeah, look, it, it was incredibly powerful because I think you know his his point um, is you know we're not judging it by the values and standards of today. We need mm-hmm. to go back to the the law and the scholarship and the precedents that existed at the time. And as you say, we, you know, we did do things differently in Australia. Or you know, Britain treated Australia as a different case. And
4: mm-hmm.
1: something that I found um, you know really um, you know interesting and disturbing, and I guess this is often the case with history, but, um, you know, it it was sort of a small thing. It seemed to be on the basis of what was initially just bad intelligence. Mm. Um, So, you know, you had kind of uh, Cook um, sailing up the east coast, um, a few people on board making observations that it kind of looked like, you know, there there were very few um, Indigenous people. They were in very small groups. They didn't seem to have a connection to a particular part of land. Um, so that, you know, they'd just clear off when the newcomers came. Um, so they had this idea that Australia was, was different, um, mm. and that really informed um, when, when um, they came to, to colonise Australia the way that they treated it, and they didn't have the idea that they had in so many other nations that they would have to do so um, with the permission and blessing of the Indigenous people. So there was no attempt to... Um, negotiate treaties for for the land as as there were in so many other countries so you know that was really interesting to me that that Mm. it seemed to be just on the basis of that that wrong impression of of what was going on that we ended up in such a terrible place.
2: Mm. I think one of the kind of like repeated um, patterns that you see especially um, in the in the first bit of the book is this gulf or discrepancy between um, intention and the effect or the gulf between um what was assigned to the early colonists and what they actually discovered you know what did they expect and what did they actually encounter and how over and over again um you know we uh and i make this generalization but when i was growing up grew up with these myths not of aboriginal nations but um that they were hunter-gatherers that didn't have a strong attachment to the land and therefore it was implied that you could move on and i think like the documented um, retelling of that history from first-hand accounts of how surprised they were that the information, the intel that they were given about Aboriginal um, communities, Aboriginal nations that were already, I mean, for, for want of another word, settled. You know, they were established nations um, where I think early in the book they talk about an early a a person who is guided through um by an indigenous guide and then there are limits to which their language can actually reach you know suddenly um the the bridging languages suddenly don't work and that's a whole other border that you cannot pass without certain protocols like the the ideas of nationhood and borders are actually quite strong and established and i thought It was so um, eye-opening, moving and, and disturbing in its own way to know that all of that was clear right from the start and how much scaffolding, how much covering up needs to be done in order for another story and myth to endure to this day.
1: Absolutely, and I think, you know, you've kind of really you know, felt the shock of the, the colonists that, that, you know, things were, were very different to, to what they believed they would be. Mm-hmm. Um, I thought, um, you know, that this is all sort of fleshed out in the first half of the book. Um, the second half of the book has a lot of really interesting and, and powerful material in it as well, but I um, just wanted to reflect on there, there's one point when he talks really, I mean, it's a book about truth-telling and, and how we kind of remember this history. Yeah. Um, And I thought it was really interesting, he sort of talks about how we're kind of less down the path of many other comparable nations in in recognising um, the conflicts that occurred and and recognising, you know, some of the the bravery of the Indigenous populations in trying to defend their land. Um, So he talks about the idea of, you know, whether this should be recognised at the National War Memorial and have the the histories sitting side by side, because we do invest a lot as a country in... Um, remembering and, and commemorating, um, you know, other wars that we, we have fought in since colonisation. Uh, but, but then he also says, you know, even if that is kind of a bridge too far, you know, should, should we have, you know, museums set up to, yeah, to no. think about and talk about these issues? So um, I think there's some sort of um, practical reflections, in, including and drawing on the experience internationally, on, on how we can sort of contribute to this truth-telling process.
2: Yeah, so many important questions raised. Let's go from a book that really meditates on the legacy of history on the present day to a book that's almost about how um, what we assumed was going to be the future has caught up with us in the present, if that makes sense. And this book, System Error, which I have to admit, I'm still getting through because I find this stuff kind of scary and sometimes overwhelming, Danielle, really does feel like a course that that's covering you that's covering a lot and putting you through your paces because um, some of the topics include ai of course um, algorithms facial recognition self-driving cars privacy hate speech um, the corruption that can be built into these systems Um, I think even um, the substance Soylent, which is (laughs) the substance that people have engineered so you never have to eat again, makes a brief cameo appearance as well. Um, This really does bring to light so many of the discussions that we're wrestling with. Uh, I think often it feels like technology has increased at such a pace over the last few decades that we haven't really sat down to meditate on the effects on um, social cohesion, on on capital and wealth, um, on on basic ideas like privacy. Um, I'm keen to hear from you, Danielle, um, why this is an important book that you think should be read by politicians and especially the prime minister.
4: Uh, Because I think
1: these issues touch all of us. And these these are things that are happening now. And the the authors um, who are three professors from Stanford,
0: um,
1: they come from very different backgrounds, which I think is important in explaining why the book is so good at um, um, fleshing out the issues. So one's a um, philosopher, um, one comes from the tech sector and and one comes from government. So they kind of bring in nicely, I think, perspectives on this question of, um, you know, what's the role government should play here? Um, but but all of those issues that you just pointed to are ones which are impacting our lives. And, and really their central argument is um, with any new technology, um, you know, technology outpaces regulation mm. uh, and technology brings benefits. But as a society, we then need to, to catch up and think about, um, you know, is this working from us, working for us? What is the fallout um, and what's the role for government? In in managing that fallout, and that they drew, um, you might not have got to it yet because I think it's towards the end. But it was a, quite an interesting analogy, I thought, um, with the kind of medical profession. And so, mm. I mean, they've obviously started with a sort of strong ethical framework in the Hippocratic Oath. But they make the point that, you know, there've been so many evolutions over time in the regulatory frameworks and the institutions. Um, So things, you know, ethical approvals for for medical experiments, rules around um, clinical trials that we need for drugs and devices before they can be rolled out, um, norms and rules around kind of biotech breakthroughs that have big ethical issues. Um, You know, what we've seen is as as new things have happened, we've had to kind of evolve laws and institutions to to catch up. And exactly Mm -hmm. the same thing applies to the tech sector It's just that progress is happening really fast uh, and it's it's hard for regulators to keep pace, but, you know, we must um, because this ultimately, um, you know, matters for privacy, it matters for justice, it matters for democracy. Um, So these are absolutely critical issues that we all need to be thinking about. Mm. Um, And, you know, where I think they make a powerful contribution is that we need policymakers that actually understand tech um, and I think there are um, people in the, the Morrison government engaging with some of these issues really um, constructively and, and proactively, uh, but we just need to see more of it. And so this is, you know, I think it's absolutely critical conversation for us all to be having.
2: It's also a reminder of the breathtaking speed with which some of this tech has sped up. And when you talk about tech often outpacing the institutions, especially governmental, the ones that apply regulations, I just almost wondered whether, you know, some of the discussions that we're having around technology are the right ones. I mean, you should be able to walk and chew gum at the same time, but as I've been reading some of, like, um, these chapters, I'm, I I do wonder whether governments are necessarily um, completely literate at having the right conversations and understanding what the stakes are. I mean... Um, when When I think of governments, one of the kind of uh constant uh, criticisms is that governments, especially democratic governments are built to move slow and and uh, have processes of review and tech seems to be able to like move uh, between uh, and and through um, any kind of uh, practical existing measures. It made me think for instance at the moment there's a, a big discussion about whether um Australia should pass a bill where internet anonymity won't be a thing. To me, when I've been reading some of this, this seems like almost a quaint conversation. So do do you feel confident that um, we'll be able to catch up when we talk about tech outpacing institutions and regulatory bodies? Do you feel optimistic after reading a book like this that we can keep pace, that that's even possible given the speed with which tech is racing ahead?
1: But look, maybe we never catch up. But look, I, I am, you know, I thought what I really liked about it was it was quite practical, um, and it did point to things that governments um, can do, which will will help now. Um, so you know, there's an. I've, I've spent a lot of time working in kind of competition and consumer protection, and quite a while there was an attitude in that world, particularly in the US, that tech was different. Um, that you know. It was naturally a competitive market, so you should let um, them buy up all the, all the new firms that, that emerged. So, you know, Facebook was allowed to buy Instagram uh, because it's tech. Um, you know, that has now shifted. And so there's a, there's a sense that, um, you know, we are worried about dominance and market power. And actually a lot of these issues would become um, much less strong in a world where these markets were more competitive and consumers had more choices. Um, so, look, I think, I think the um, mindset is shifting. Uh, the frontier will always move faster than regulation and democracies do move slow and that's that's generally a good thing. Um, mm-hmm. But I, I think we now kind of are getting a handle on it and I am optimistic that um, some of the worst excesses will be able to be curbed.
2: Mm. I mean, it's a big macro discussion, so many macro discussions, big picture discussions that system error deals with. But I'm curious, Danielle, before we wrap up, did reading this book make you change the way that you personally engage with tech at all?
1: Uh, I'm already a bit of a um, privacy zealot. So I use um, DuckDuckGo for a a lot of my searches and I'm very um, kind of keen on my privacy settings and things like that. So it it reinforced um, those biases that I already had. Uh, It made me pretty scared about algorithmic decision-making and how it can go wrong. So there's a real cautionary tale there around um, you know, using algorithms for hiring um, and how that can embed gender bias, and that um, you know, and some frightening stories about how they're being used in the justice system without without proper testing and the implications of that. So um, it it kind of um, shone a light on some areas that I hadn't been worried about that I am now worried about.
2: Mm-hmm. Well, thank you so much um, for the time and for this reading list, Danielle. What a great um, what a great stack that everyone it has. Is
1: Fantastic, Stack, and um, thank you so much for your time, Ben, in being here and um, keeping the discussion so lively and interesting. Uh, It was fantastic to have you and it was fantastic to uh, have the authors join us as well. Um, I would be remiss if I didn't mention the wonks list. Um, So we also choose six additional pieces um, for the Prime Minister's advisors to, to read over summer. And I know that a lot of our Grattan community love it because they are um, slightly nerdier reads. Um, So please go to the website and and check that out if that's your cup of tea. Um, So thank you again, Ben. Um, Thank you to the State Library and and thank you to our authors. Uh, And a big thank you to the fantastic Grattan staff uh, who spent all year reading and and discussing books, uh, especially to Eloise Shepherd and Annika Stovett who helped coordinate the list. Uh, to Lockie Fox, who coordinated the Wonks list, uh, and to the wonderful Ring Ringrose, who who did such a great job pulling together tonight's event. Uh, In fact, all our events throughout the year, Uh, but this one has definitely got the kind of highest logistical degree of difficulty. Um, If you like what Grattan does and you would like us to be around for the long haul, please do consider supporting us. Uh, It has been a big year for policy. Uh, I think we've had a really significant impact Uh, And we've also, I hope, um, added a calmer, more evidence-based voice to a a lot of policy debates. Uh, We've got a lot in store for 2022 uh, and if you you support us, uh, we can sort of keep doing what we do. Um, A big thank you, obviously, to all our existing supporters. You know, we are so grateful for the public-spirited individuals, the philanthropic groups, the corporates that support our work, Um, To all of you, please have a wonderful Christmas break. Uh, I hope you have the opportunity to to reunite with friends and family. Uh, Please keep the border open, South Australian Government, Um, and hopefully you will also have a chance to to read some of the works on tonight's list. Uh, We look forward to seeing you back refreshed uh, for another year of policy conversations in 2022. Uh, Thanks, everyone, and good night.